Uh, g'day everyone, my name is Mark. Whilst I get set up up here, we've been sitting down for a little while, so what I want you to do is to stand up, have a little stretch, and ask the person closest to you what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of heaven. Very first thing, go. All right, grab a seat. Um, if I haven't met you, my name is Mark, I'm one of the pastors here, one of only two pastors here today actually, because our senior pastor Rod is away on holidays. Uh, this week. If I haven't met you, and I know we've got some special guests with us this week, uh, I'd love to say good day afterwards. Come and, come and find me in the foyer. Uh, as Kathy has mentioned, we're at the end of a, a term-long series that we've been doing called Digging Deeper, where we've been addressing some really tough theological topics uh, over these nine weeks, and particularly this last three weeks, uh, the topic of the end times. And uh, we're at the end of the end. And um, before I start, I really I want to echo Kathy's comments that I've been uh, so privileged, particularly over this last week, to have heard from so many of you and so many other people around our church who have been just engaging with what we've been talking about and who've been letting God's word shape their lives. And lots of people around us, God has been doing lots of work in their lives over these last couple of weeks especially. And it's been a privilege for me to share this stuff with you and to see what God is doing in your lives. Uh, So can I encourage you guys here... It's absolutely one of the, the most encouraging things you can do is share with another person what God is doing in your heart and in your life. If you've been convicted by things over these last few weeks, if you've been thinking, you've been challenged, you've taken some steps of faith, whatever it might be, why don't you have a conversation with somebody at morning tea and try and encourage them, share with them uh, in thankfulness for what God has been doing for you. Well, why don't I pray and then we'll, uh, we'll have a think about this chapter of the Bible together. Almighty God, thank you so much for our hope, our sure hope of heaven. Thank you that it is as certain as the resurrection of your son, Jesus. And thank you for this time now where we get to just sit under your word and to soak ourselves in this amazing picture in Revelation 21. Uh, Please, Lord, uh, we need uh, the eyes of faith to understand this. We need your spirit to be at work in us. So please, uh, God, make this time fruitful and productive and help us to see heaven all the more clearly this morning. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to introduce you to someone on the screen. Some of you might know who this is. This is a guy inside that spacesuit called Felix Baumgartner. Pretty sweet name. Uh, This is the crazy guy who broke the Guinness World Record for the highest free fall, highest parachute jump ever. I think he also broke the the fastest that a human has ever gone unassisted as well. I think he broke that record too. Basically what he did there is he got inside that little capsule, like a space pod kind of thing, touched a giant hot air balloon in it and rode that pod all the way up to the very limit of the Earth's atmosphere. He went 39 kilometres up into the air and then he skydived back down to Earth. Uh, Pretty nuts. And this photo was taken just as he was about to jump, uh, as he was about to head out of this pod. And right at that moment, He said something very interesting. I want to read it to you. He said, Sometimes you have to go up really high to understand how small you really are. He said that, and then he jumped out of the pod and he said, I'm coming home. It's a pretty beautiful sort of moment, really, isn't it? And that is one way that you could go about getting perspective on your life and on this world. I don't really recommend that we go about finding perspective by this way. I think there are safer methods to do that, but our goal in this little mini-series that we've been doing together has really been to get some perspective on 
our lives and on eternity. Uh, Our goal has been to get God's perspective on those things, hasn't it? And so in the first week, when we talked about the return of Jesus, and the second week, when we talked about that day of final judgment and one of the outcomes of that day, that is eternal separation from God in hell, what we've been doing there is trying trying to see things as God sees them and have that perspective transform the way that we live, okay? That's what we've been doing, and today is no different, except today we're thinking about heaven. We're thinking about heaven. Been waiting for this for three weeks. And really, there is no topic, I think, in the Christian life that we need to have our perspective kind of overhauled on more than heaven. Because we have such a deficit when it comes to the way that we we think and talk about heaven. Uh, Heaven, for most of us, doesn't really factor into our day-to-day lives, does it? You will know, as well as I do, that our hearts have this propensity, this tendency to kind of get bogged down in the, the here and now stuff, right? The, into these lives that we're living on this earth and not to think about the next life. You know that, don't you? That your heart has a tendency to, to love and to desire and to try and sort of build and hold on to your home here in this world and to not really care that much about your home in the next world. You know that's true of you just as well as I know that it's true of me. All too rarely do we actually ever talk about heaven or think about heaven. And you know the end result of that, that imbalance? The end result is that our lives actually don't look all that different from people who only have hope for this life. Isn't that true? I think it's true and I think it's incredibly sad because the life of a Christian, the life of somebody who knows that eternity exists and that we're going to experience it, the life that you live here on earth should be radically different from the life of somebody who thinks that this life is all there is, shouldn't it? I think you would agree. Uh, one of my favourite uh, writers, theologians, preachers, Jonathan Edwards, he once said, O oh Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. It's a pretty gross image, but he's got the right idea. We need that, don't we? We need always to be looking at this world, looking at our lives with eternity in mind. It's only when we do that, friends, when, when we correctly understand what is ahead of us, that we are going to be able to live wise, beautiful, God-glorifying lives here and now. We need perspective on eternity. And so today, what I want to do as we walk through this incredible chapter of Revelation 21, what I want to try and help us do is just to see heaven a little bit more clearly. I want us to see what I'm going to try and show you, four features of that next life that we have to look forward to. Uh, This is a really challenging part of the Bible to think about and to understand properly. No doubt, as you heard Eliana read that so well before, that you had lots of questions about what all this crazy stuff is that's going on there. Uh, We'll try and wrestle with some of that. And as I said, I'm going to try and show you four features of heaven that should transform our lives here and now. With that perspective right, uh, it should make a difference to our lives. That's what we're going to be thinking about. So four features of the new creation. first feature uh, that I want us to see from Revelation chapter 1 is that heaven will be a whole new creation. Heaven will be a new creation, right? We have to sort of clear some air here right off the bat that when we talk about heaven, it's actually a really tricky word biblically to to kind of talk about because the Bible uses the word heaven in two main ways, right? 
in one sense, let's call it the first definition of the word heaven according to the Bible, it uses that word, or heavens sometimes, just to talk about the sky. Okay, So the sky where the planets are, where the birds fly through, that's heaven, that's the heavens. And so you think of the beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. What does God do in the beginning? God created the heavens, sky, and the earth, right? The land, the up there and down here. It's heavens and earth. It's just a shorthand kind of way in the Bible of saying everything, the whole cosmos, all of creation, right? All of existence. And so heaven sometimes gets used in that sense, like that part up there, that's heaven. That's the first definition. But there's a second definition in the Bible as well, and this one's probably the one you're more familiar with. The Bible also uses the word heaven from time to time to talk about the invisible realm where God is right now, you know, with his throne, with his angels, that kind of thing. That place that God has, his space, if you like, that is heaven, biblically speaking. And so you think of, for example, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us to pray our Father in heaven, right? That's that use of the second definition of the word heaven, God's space, God's dwelling place, right? Now, it's important, it's really important that we understand these two different definitions here because when we think about our eternal destiny as Christians, and when we read passages like Revelation 21, we have this tendency, I think, to read it as if it's talking about that second definition of the word heaven. We read Revelation 21 and expect that this is sort of like telling us the furniture of God's space, that invisible place where we're going to go when we die, that God's place. That's the definition that we import into Revelation 21. But did you notice that this chapter is not talking about that second definition? Uh, Have a look at the way John uses the word heaven in this chapter, verse 1 of chapter 21. P.S., if you've got a Bible in front of you, it would be really helpful, this sermon, to keep it open. We're going to be jumping around a lot. Revelation 21, verse 1. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away. See which definition he's using there? Uh, the, the point that I'm making is that, strictly speaking, our eternal home as Christians is not heaven. Please don't kind of get too worried about that. Our eternal home as Christians is not heaven in the way that we normally think about it. God's space, this invisible realm somewhere. It's not that we're going to go and spend eternity there. No, what, what is John seeing in this revelation? He's seeing that our eternal destiny is going to be on a new heaven and earth, a new heavens and earth. God is going to create, or maybe recreate, might be a more accurate way, an entirely new, unblemished world for us to live in. And I, I, elephant in the room, I know that that might be, uh, uh, might be radically different to the way that you've always thought about heaven, perhaps. That, you know, when we die, we go to heaven, there's going to be clouds, there's going to be those fat little baby angels with wings and shooting arrows and stuff and just going to be sort of floating around a little bit. You see, this picture of heaven has none of those cliches. No, this is not some disembodied ghostly experience. This is a tangible, physical, dare I say earthly picture that we are getting here. We're going to live in a real world. We're going to do real bodily things. We are going to walk and talk and work and sing and eat in this new world. So heaven, if you do want to call it that, then you've got to understand that heaven is actually just like this world, but better, way better. Uh, because did you pick up on, 
uh, how this world is described. We'll have a look at verse 4, just how amazing this new world is going to be. John says that he sees in this world God himself wiping away our tears. Can you imagine that? If you, if you are a believer, if you love God, can you imagine this? God himself wiping away your tears in heaven. There are not going to be any more tears in heaven. I don't understand how this works. I don't understand how my pain in this life is going to be dealt with, but God promises me that it is. No more tears in heaven. And we're told also there, there's going to be no more death in heaven. No more death. It will not exist in this new world. And neither will mourning or crying or pain because, as John says, the old order of things has passed away. Friends, you see what John is trying to describe here? You might have cottoned onto it already. What John is doing here is he's describing the curse from Genesis chapter 3, from the fall of mankind, Adam and Eve disobeying God, I mean, curse sent out of their own. John is describing that curse being lifted, that curse being done away with. In fact, John says precisely that just in the next chapter of Revelation, if you keep reading. He says, the curse will be no more. And so all those things that are just the hallmarks of this world and this life that we live, death and mourning and crying and pain, that stuff that just forms the very fabric of our existence, God's new creation will have none of it. There will be no curse in the new creation because, you see, there will be no sin in the new creation. We're going to experience a perfect world that we were created to experience. Here's the point. It's going to be like a new Eden, a new Garden of Eden, but one that is never subject to the curse. That's the point John is trying to make. And we don't have time, unfortunately, today to look in detail through this chapter and to see all of the ways that John is very deliberately trying to get us to cast our minds back to the Garden of Eden. This whole chapter is full of imagery that makes us think back to the Garden of Eden, trees and rivers and precious gemstones and stuff like that. I encourage you to go and read that for yourself afterwards. The point I'm trying to make is that our eternal home is not heaven. Our eternal home is a new creation, a new Eden. Now, there is not a single one of us here in this room who has not felt the pain of the curse, felt the pain of brokenness in this world. The curse has left scars on every single one of us, physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it might be. We, we all know the pain of living in this broken world, don't we? Whether that's a disease that you suffer, whether that's a loved one that you lost, whether that's a relationship that has broken down, that's what it is to live in this broken world. We all feel it. And so if you are anything like me, as you, as you read this, this prospect, more than that, this promise of this world, this perfect new creation that's going to come, that's free from death and mourning and crying and pain. Doesn't that, doesn't that sound appealing? Don't you want to go to this place where God is going to kind of bind up your wounds, where he's going to repair your broken heart? Oh, that is so appealing to me. I, I, want to, I want to go to this place, don't you? Doesn't that vision start to put eternity a little bit more in perspective for us. When we compare it to this life, I tell you, friends, it makes me want to hold on to Jesus. No matter the cost, 
no matter what we have to endure in this life, I want to hold on to Jesus because I want to live in that world, don't you? That's the first thing that we see in this chapter. Heaven will be a whole new creation. Second thing uh, that John wants us to see is that in heaven we will be gloriously transformed. We will be gloriously transformed. Uh, It's not just that we're going to live in a perfect world, it's that we are going to be perfected. And so John wants us to understand this by drawing our attention in this chapter to that amazing city that we read so much about. And so have a look at verse 2, what John says. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, just take a minute and just read that, that verse again to yourself and try and picture this, okay? I want you to try and, and visualize what John is writing here. A holy city coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Can any, honestly, can anyone picture that? Because I can't. <laughs> can't picture that that is a a difficult image to get your head around a city that's kind of like a bride a bride city you know what is actually going on with this picture what is what is this bride city well john picks up that image again later in the chapter verse 9 let's have a read of verse 9 here the angel says to john come i will show you the bride i'll show you the bride the wife of the lamb and so the angel carries john away to the top of a mountain and shows him the bride? No. The angel shows John the city. Hang on, wasn't the angel just promising to show him the bride? Now he's showing him the city? What's going on here? What's, what is this bride city? You see what John is doing? He's deliberately messing with our minds here. It's tricky to, to pin down what he's actually seeing. Is it a bride? Is it a city? Because they're the same thing. <laughs> the bride is the city. The bride is the new Jerusalem in this vision. Now, the question we ought to ask at this point is, well, then who's the bride? <laughs> you know, who is this, this vision, this beautiful bride that's been prepared for God? Well, if you know your Bibles, you know the answer to that question because biblically speaking, we are the bride. The church of God is the bride. The redeemed people of God who have been ransomed through the blood of the Lamb, that is the bride of Christ. And so do you get what John's doing here? He is not going into detail about some literal golden square city that we are going to live in, in the new creation. No, John's trying to describe what we are going to be like in the new creation. You understand? If you read Revelation 21 and you come away with it wanting to you know, kind of build a scale model of this new city of Jerusalem, which many people have done and they've wasted a lot of time doing it. If you do that, you've missed the point. Because this is not trying to teach us about where we are going to live in the new creation. This is trying to teach us what we are going to be like in the new creation. We are the new Jerusalem, the beautiful, glorious bride city of God. So what does John want us to know about this bride city? Well, did you notice the detail that he mentions about the inscriptions on the walls of this city and its foundations? Uh, In verses 12 and 14, will come up on the screen. John tells us the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles are inscribed onto this city. You see, these names which represent the Old Testament people of God in their entirety and the New Testament people of God in their entirety, they're all there. They're all part of this gigantic city. 
the point is the entire number of the people of God are there united. And John tells us this very, very interesting fact uh, just before this. In verse 11, John says that it, that is the city, that is us, it, shone with the glory of God. That its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. See, what John is saying is that in heaven, we will radiate with the glory of God, with his beauty and his brilliance and his majesty. That is what we are going to be like in heaven. Now, that's, that's really hard to believe, isn't it? Let's be honest. It's, it's hard to, to picture looking at the person next to you and them sort of shining so brightly because they've been perfected and glorified like that. We don't see that now, do we? We, the church, really don't show much of God's glory. To be blunt, a lot of the time as the church, we're pretty ugly, aren't we? Not externally, you're you're all beautiful people, but internally, the church can be very ugly. Christians can be so full of of bickering and double-mindedness and deceit and lies and so many other sins. But friends, if you lift your eyes to heaven you will see that one day we will be beautiful. Isn't that that amazing? One day we will be beautiful. Instead of the muck, we will radiate the majesty of God. Instead of the grime, we will radiate the glory of God. That is heaven. Transformed, redeemed people from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. Isn't that something to look forward to? And doesn't that give you incredible hope to live your life here and now with a church that is less than glorious? You know, when when Christians disappoint you in this life, when the church fails you, when you disappoint yourself and sin gets the better of you yet again, you need to remember this, that Christians are not perfect. They're not glorious this side of the new creation. But there will be one day when they will be when we will be, when God's glory will completely transform and purify us so that we will be like him, that's heaven. So a perfect new creation and a glorified, transformed people of God. Is that all that heaven is? I really hope the answer that you're saying there is no, that's not heaven because there's one very crucial ingredient missing and that is God himself. And so the third thing that John wants us to see is really that what makes heaven heaven is that God will dwell with us. That's what makes heaven heaven. God will dwell with us. Let's have a read of verse 3. Uh, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is a breathtaking promise, friends. The, the, the glorious, majestic, holy, faithful, omnipotent, sovereign God of the universe is going to live with his people. God is going to dwell with them. This, this, is, this vision is really, it's the final fulfillment of that, that promise right at the beginning of the Bible, back to Father Abraham, that promise that one day God is going to gather a people for himself with whom he can dwell. 
This promise is the fulfillment of what Jesus came to earth to do. When Jesus came and he dwelt amongst us, what was he doing that for? It was to save and to redeem a people through his precious blood, a people who will dwell with him in heaven. That's what we're seeing here, the fulfillment of that promise. You see, friends, what makes heaven heaven is that God is going to dwell with us. I think that's the point that we're supposed to understand later in that chapter when we hear about the really peculiar architecture of this incredible city. You know, John writes in verse 16 that this city is as wide and as long as it is high. This city is a perfect cube. And that's not just some kind of random, you know, quirky architectural feature that God likes or something. No, when we, when we read that this city is a perfect cube, something's supposed to happen in our minds and our memories are supposed to be jogged. We're supposed to think back in our Bibles to, I think, the only other place that a cube shows up in the Bible. Does anyone know what it is? It's back in the Old Testament. The one place where we find a cube in the Bible is in the Holy of Holies. You know, that, that place right in the center of the tabernacle, right in the center of God's temple, the Holy of Holies, the place where God came to dwell amongst his people. That was a cube. And you remember that Holy of Holies idea, don't you? The Holy of Holies was a place that was so holy, so pure, that only one man could enter into that space, the great high priest. And he could only enter once a year. And he could only enter once a year after he'd performed an animal sacrifice. And he would go in and he would atone for the sins of the people. It was a very limited, very distant kind of a, a setup, a relationship where God dwelt amongst his people. And so do you see the implications, friends, of this new cubic heavenly city? The point is that the whole city is the Holy of Holies. It's not just one little place anymore, not just one person who has access on one day of the year and only after certain ceremonial requirements are met. No, in heaven, the entirety of the population will have access to God. In heaven, we are going to be able to enjoy God's glorious presence totally. John makes that point clear yet again in this chapter, in verse 22. John writes, I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, it's almost unthinkable to imagine, you know, Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, without a temple in it. That's, a, that's like trying to imagine Sydney without the Opera House, the Harbour Bridge or something. It's unthinkable. And yet, in the heavenly Jerusalem, there is no temple because there's no need of it. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. John is ramming this point home to us at full force. God will dwell with his people. We will have access to God forever. I'm just trying to say this as many different ways as I know how. You will not need to make an appointment to see God. There's not going to be any mediators between you and God in heaven. It will be God with us face to face. An intimate relationship. Don't you long for that? I hope you do if you're a Christian. You know, I'm, I'm sure if, if you're a Christian if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then you will know that sometimes in life we go through these seasons, don't we? Seasons where occasionally we feel really close to God and then there are those other seasons where we feel really distant 
from God or maybe God feels distant from us. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Those, those feelings where it feels like you're just praying to an empty room, where, where God's mercy towards you feels really unexciting. You know those, those feelings, don't you? I want to be clear. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that when you put your faith in Christ and you become a Christian, you are objectively as close and as connected and as united to God as you can be. That's the objective truth. And yeah, it doesn't change the fact that from time to time we still feel that distance, don't we? Friends, in God's new creation, those feelings are going to be a thing of the past because we will be as close to God as is possible. You won't get those dry days. You won't get those distant days. You are going to enjoy God every day as your sovereign saviour for eternity because in heaven, God himself will dwell with us. Isn't that good news? The last feature of this new creation that I want us to see is that John promises that nothing will ruin heaven. (laughs) This needs to be said, doesn't it? Nothing will ruin heaven heaven it's safe and secure for eternity there is no no threat that this city needs to fear and so that's why you get that description in verse 17 of the great walls of this city and john tells us the angel measures them and they're over 60 meters high and they're they're made of precious jasper stone and i'm not a builder i know some of you are i don't think jasper is a particularly good building material i could be wrong about that but the point is clear though isn't it these are extravagant walls. They're ample enough to keep us safe. That's the point. And in verse 25, you get this mention that the 12 gates into the city are never going to shut. The gates are going to be open all year round. Now, you see, in ancient cities, thousands of years ago, the cities would always close their gates at night because at night you couldn't protect yourself from intruders, right, from invaders, that sort of thing. But this heavenly Jerusalem, it has no night. The glory of God gives it perpetual light. The lamb is the lamp of the city. There is no night. And so there's no threat that we need to be protected against. I don't know if in your house, you know, what security measures you have at your place to keep you safe. But you do need some, don't you? You need at least a lock on your front door. Uh, Catherine lately has been editing and writing the local Neighbourhood Watch newsletter for our suburb. And it's been a good reminder for us that as great as Wollongong is, it's not perfectly safe. Sorry to break that to you. In the suburbs that we live in, there are burglaries, there are assaults. Uh, this is not perfectly safe. And no place in this world is perfectly safe. Why is that? Well, it's because this world is full of broken people, right? That's why this world is not safe. And friends, do you know that is what separates the heavenly Jerusalem from our city. Did you read that in verse, verse 8 earlier? We, we read past it quickly. Verse 8, The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. John says the same thing in verse 27, later at the end of the chapter. Nothing impure will ever enter this city nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. You see, the point is, this city is safe. It is secure. Because when God creates his new world, he's going to remove everything and everyone who could 
ruin and break his world again. We talked about that last week, didn't we? Now, for some people, that prospect, I understand, will be very scary. Because for some people sitting here, undoubtedly, you will be realising that based on those descriptions, you would not be welcome into God's new world. And so if that's you this morning, can I just plead with you and remind you that citizenship in this, this city is only a prayer away. There's no elaborate visa process, no application process. If you ask for forgiveness, if you ask for the lamb that was slain to wash you clean by his blood, you will be welcomed in. Because none of us get into this city based on our own merits, do we? Now, based on our own merits, we deserve to be kept outside it. But based on the merits of our saviour, Jesus, our perfect saviour, that's how we get in. And you are willing to, to come and join us if you will just ask the lamb. But there will be others of us here today uh, for whom it's actually a really happy prospect to be reminded that this heavenly Jerusalem is safe and secure and nothing will ruin heaven. Because as we walk through this life trying to stay faithful, trying to stay true, trying to remain obedient to the Lord Jesus, we know that's hard, right? And, And it can be costly to do that. And so this promise is saying to you, friends, that please know that it's guaranteed. Know that all of those blessings that you are looking forward to, they are rock-solid certain. Nothing will ruin heaven, ever. So what have we seen today, friends? We've seen that heaven will be a whole new creation. We've seen that we are going to live there, gloriously transformed. We've seen that God himself will dwell with us, and we've seen that it will go on forever. That is our heavenly home that we have to look forward to. Uh, I'm one of those people who loves coming home after being uh, away for really any length of time. Uh, Catherine and I, I think, are wired the same way on this. Whenever we go away on holidays, I reckon we get to about day four or five, and there's always a point where we sort of like look at each other and we just think, oh, it's going to be nice to be back home, isn't it? Do uh, you know that kind of feeling? I, maybe it's just us, and if that makes us boring, then so be it. But there is something nice, isn't there? About being home, being back in the place where you fit. You know, when, you, when you're away on holiday, things are always just slightly less convenient than they would be when you're at home. But when you get back, you get back to this place that is just tailor-made for you. There's this feeling like, oh, relief. I belong here. I'm safe. I'm at rest my home friends i imagine that when we get to the new creation that we will step foot in it and we'll look around at each other and we'll say this is where we were supposed to be all along we will finally be home with our loving heavenly father finally home for eternity does that eternal perspective do anything for you today I've got one final illustration which I want to use, which I hope will make this clear. I didn't come up with this illustration. Some of you might have even seen this illustration before. Uh, But uh, here it is anyway. I've got here a rope, uh, and I want you to imagine that this rope, uh, it goes on forever. It's an eternal rope. It it doesn't end just around that corner there. No, it goes down, it goes out the church, it goes up the main street, all the way into Wollongong, keeps going on the highway, reaches Sydney, all the way up, 
past cans, it just keeps wrapping. It's an eternal rope. You get the idea. It's not an eternal rope. I couldn't afford that one at Bunnings, but you get the point. This is an eternal rope. And I want you to imagine that this rope represents the timeline of your existence. That's what this is. Timeline of your existence. And you see this bit here? This red bit? That's your life here on Earth. 80 years, whatever it might be, that's your life here on Earth. And then all of this, never ending for the rest of eternity. That's your existence. If you're a Christian, this white bit, that's your heavenly home. You with me? That gives you some perspective, doesn't it? Just, just seeing this, thinking about this, gives you some perspective. But I want you to go one step further. I want you to imagine, imagine knowing that this is true, knowing that you will exist for eternity. And now I want you to hypothesize and try and picture a person. A person living, let's say, right about here, okay? Right about here. This person's going to exist for eternity. And this person, uh, this person is working really hard in this life, and they're working really hard so that this bit here can be as, as good as it can be. They're making all sorts of plans. They're pouring energy and time into structuring out this section of their life right here. They're pinning all of their, their hopes and their dreams on just what possibilities could happen to them in this last inch or so of, of this red part of the rope. Can you imagine a person like that, living like that, if they knew that that rest of the rope was there? You can't, can you? It's, that's an absurdity, isn't it? To think that you would be so fixated on the red part when there's eternity right around the corner. It's a nonsense. And your friends, that is exactly what many of us are doing. We work and we plan and we pin our hopes on this red part. Whereas if we really knew that eternity was waiting there for us, if we really had that eternal perspective of just how great this next life is going to be, then we would work and we would plan and we would pin our hopes on this part, wouldn't we? I think that's what we would do. Too often, we are fixated on life here and now, and we don't long for the life that is to come. And so my hope for you as I finish is that from today, from a bit more of an eternal perspective, from this last three weeks that we've spent thinking about this, that, that each one of us would really be able to honestly echo the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. So I'm going to read them to you now, and I hope that you can say this, that this is true of you and how you are going to live the rest of your life. This is what Paul writes. He says, Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Friends, let's fix our eyes on eternity, yeah? Not on this life. Let's run the race, let's spur one another on and let's make it to the end because we know that the next life will be worth it. Why don't we pray?
God, your blessings to us are beyond comprehension. We have the, the beginnings of an inkling of a feeling about what life in your eternal kingdom, this new creation is going to be like. God, we know that it will be unspeakably and unimaginably better than even our best words can, can muster right now. So God, please fix our eyes on eternity. Lord, help us to long for that day when we will meet Jesus and be with him for, for the rest of eternity. And so please, Lord, save us from the fatal error of living just for this life. Please free us from the burden of having everything rest on these few short years that we have here and now. Just to live boldly and courageously and faithfully, sacrificially, lovingly, because we know that our reward will be worth it. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.